0: We it's been some time since we have since we've met and um, hope everybody had a good holiday and I anticipate um, I'm not sure exactly what the Christmas schedule is going to look like just yet so uh, bear with us on that as we kind of deal with you know, all the other stuff but um, um, but I'll let y'all know in the next couple of weeks what that's going to look like as far as Wednesday night goes Um. But it's been a few weeks since we've, or been a, a, at least a week since we've met, and so want to just take a second to go, th- just remind us of the last of the three weeks leading up to the the holiday, and how Solomon we've seen in chapters six through nine, or really six through eight, is um, building and dedicating the temple, um, and we talked about over the last few weeks the significance of the temple and what it what it really what purpose it really serves and how um, a hope was to to kind of lay out what a a Jew would really be thinking about the temple and how he would consider it as he went up to worship and um, how the Bible actually lays out several aspects of the temple that are of, of great importance and things that we need to understand about how it's thought of. Um, and what its purpose really serves, and 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 its long term purpose as well. Um, we saw that originally uh, God's God's realm and man's realm had coexisted in harmony. We saw that in the Garden of Eden, and we obviously know the story of of creation is that over time um, the the two realms, God's realm, man's realm, though they did coexist,ed were separated by the fall that man's sin had pushed them out of had pushed us out of God's realm, and so um, the first reunion between heaven and earth took place in the temple, in that tabernacle temple place, was sort of this um, more or less portal into um, into the the heavenly realm where man could once again approach in some way the glory of God, and so um, so we we saw that that, that was kind of a, a union between heaven and earth or some some sort of restoration of the union. And so um, we saw that that was reflected in the way the temple was constructed, that there's three main parts. And it's had this sort of mirroring or parallel to um, the cosmos, the created order, where you've got the outside courtyard being sort of representative of the earth, the heavens being represented by you know, just inside um, the temple or the tabernacle. And then obviously the inner dimension where, where God dwells being the, you know, the very um, court, the courtroom of, of, of the Lord. Um, and so the, the high priest was the only one allowed to go in there once a year. And he would have a, a basically a, a veil through smoke, basically through incense, um, so that he couldn't look directly on the glory of God lest he die. Um, and then we also saw that not only does it have this sort of um, cosmological uh, significance and sort of parallel, but it also uh, looks a lot like Eden and has and and has some Edenic imagery throughout it as well. There's lots of garden-like imagery all over the the temple, particularly Solomon's Temple. There's you know. Wood carved gourds and flowers and palm trees and pomegranates and all kinds of different things that are meant to sort of reflect what the Garden of Eden was like um, and and show that in the the. Uh, the Temple, and so it was very clear uh, or it should it should be pretty clear to any reader and it certainly would have been clear to a participant in worship at the at the temple that there is um, an attempt if you will, at the restoration of the Garden of Eden, or at least at the very least a reminder that this is the place where man communes with with the God of all creation as Adam once did in the Garden of Eden. And that's what we're, you know, on the trajectory. That's what we're on the path to, uh, uh, to restoring, if you will. And so Solomon's temple has got these two kind of balancing aspects to it, uh, cosmological parallels with the Garden of Eden. And then what we see in the end times in Revelation is this depiction by John of uh, the final kind of end times temple. He's very clear when he says there is no temple, but he gives us this temple type imagery and this Garden of Eden imagery where he shows that you know the two of these um, the two of these things are um, meant to show that in, in the end times God is going to once again dwell with his people. that's, that's kind of the picture that's what it's meant to, to symbolize. Is that Christ is going to dwell with us on a new earth, on a reconstituted earth? I've talked about this a number of times from the pulpit, and a number of times uh, here on Wednesday night. That we we often, and, and this is probably a failure on a mul- on a multiple occasions, failure from on, on all of our parts uh, of reading our Bible, but then also a failure on you know churches and teaching this that. <laughs> that what we're anticipating the end times being and what the Bible teaches over and over is the earth will be made new and that our existence uh, on will be on a reconstituted earth and that it will be bodily. We will have bodies and we will um, have a, an existence uh, with each other. if you can imagine, very much like we do now, except without sin, all sin removed. Imagine that, imagine that, uh, that picture all sin removed and we have fellowship with one another. And that, that runs counter to often what, what is kind of in here in our thoughts that it, that, that time at the, at the end of all things will be like kind of a ghostly type thing where we sort of are, you know, these sort of floating spirits kind of out there and, um, space or something and and that's that's not at all what we're looking at um, that certainly there certainly is some sort of intermediate period where um, where you know we see in revelation the souls under the altar and uh, the souls of the saints under the altar and things like that where there is a sort of a disembodied state our body our fleshly body rots and our, our spirit goes to be with the lord but that's not the end the end is a reunion of body and soul where the body is remade also like the earth to be uh, eternal and so we believe that god originally from the beginning spoke into nothing and created everything and he will again speak into a fallen you know existence and and pull the fallenness away in that you know speaking in and so um so that i think that Hopefully that helps in, in, in understanding uh, what we're anticipating, but also that what John is depicting is he's merging those two images of the Garden of Eden and of the cosmological temple. He's merging them together in this end times to depict exactly that, this new heavens and new earth. The significance of it is that it's, it, is that it's like the whole creation is the temple. Well, what does that mean? It means that the whole creation is God dwelling with us, but not just the whole creation is the temple. He even goes as far as to say the whole creation is like the Holy of Holies in the temple. So it's a perfect cube. And that that design is meant to bring to mind the image of the Holy of Holies. Well, only the high priest could go in there. Well, not anymore. In the new heavens and new earth, we're talking God so closely dwelling with us that Uh, that it's like we're all in the Holy of Holies and we're all there with him. And so, but there's no smoke. There's no, there's no uh, nothing shrouding his holiness or anything like that. It's completely unfurled and we can see it and not die. Um, That's kind of the the picture. So, uh, you know, a glorious depiction that is. So, so we are more or less leaving the building of the temple and we're coming back into the story in first Kings and uh, I haven't really decided exactly um, if I'm going to come back to some of Solomon next week or not. But uh, my intention right now is this is the last bit on Solomon, and so I just kind of want to give a summary of more or less the end of it, the end of his time, and then next week really get into the nitty gritty because this is really it. This is the last time that Israel will will be. Uh, Great, <laughs> I mean, so, for all intents and purposes, at the end of Solomon's reign is uh really where the rest of 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 Israel is going to face its downfall, and um they never quite get back uh to that place, and so I want us to kind of look at some of these things, but then I also wanted to ask, you know how does this happen? Solomon is. Wise, right? You'll hear me, I think, um, you know, tons pray for wisdom. Uh, James tells us, ask for wisdom. He gives to all liberally and without reproach. And if you ask in faith. And so he he tell the Bible tells us, ask for wisdom. Well, here is Solomon, who at the beginning of his reign asks the Lord for wisdom. And yet his reign. Begins the downfall. I mean, obviously his reign is is experiences the height of Israel, but then it begins that downfall where it will never reach those heights again and it will come to a crash very shortly after his death. How can that be if this man had wisdom? So we've got to figure that out too. We've got to we've got to at least approach that as well. So um with that being said, let's start here. After More than about 20 years or so, um, God appears to Solomon a second time and reaffirms his covenant and promises blessing. But remember, we saw this with David. We're going to see it again with Solomon. There is a condition to God's promises. He always makes this, this sort of condition at the very back end of these promises if Solomon proved loyal and obedient, these are, those are the big conditions, loyalty and obedience to the Lord. But if Solomon proved loyalty, loyal and obedient, then they would go on forever. The, the, his blessing and his covenant would go on forever without any kind of interruption whatsoever. But if he proved unfaithful, both his kingship and the temple Along with and and therefore the rest of the nation would be halted until Yahweh, uh, in His sovereign grace, brought restoration. Now think about that for just a second. If Solomon is telling, um, is telling them, is telling, if Yahweh is telling Solomon that, hey, if if you don't, if you're not loyal, if you don't continue in obedience. Um, then I then the temple, and you know my glory in the temple, my presence in the temple, your kingship they 're all going to come to an end until I bring restoration. Imagine what that means for the entire nation remember that 's the removal of their even access to god that 's the removal of their um their garden of eden that's them being kicked out of the garden of eden right that's them being back again in a in a fallen world and so there there's a great consequence for disobedience and we see that in in what God tells uh, to Solomon. But listen to what he says here in 1 Kings 9, 1 to 9. As soon as Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord and the king's house and all that Solomon desired to build, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time as he had appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea. I remember the he says Gibeon there. Remember that was when he asked what Solomon wanted and Solomon asked for wisdom. Uh, that's what he means there. And the Lord said to him, "I have heard your prayer and your plea, which you have made before him before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there uh, my name there forever, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked with integrity of heart." and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne on Israel forever. As I promised David, your father saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children and do not keep my commandments and my statutes and that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut Israel off from the land that I have given them and the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight and Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. That's the old Testament basically. And this house will become a heap of ruins. Every everyone passing by it will be astonished and will hiss and they will say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to the, to this house? And they will say, because they abandoned the Lord their God who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this disaster on them. So you can see right away that there is grave consequences should Solomon engage in any kind of disobedience and covenant unfaithfulness before the Lord. And so there's this conditional statement to this covenant and this blessing that he has given both to the temple and to Solomon's kingship. That's going to prove really big. So you have to really kind of put a marker on that. The covenant, meaning the line of Solomon and uh, the blessing of his, of his presence in the temple is all going to come into question, should there be disobedience amongst the people of Israel? And we're going to see exactly that, but it's going to take until the prophets when we see a lot of that. So Solomon's, uh, really, and Israel's spiritual deterioration didn't occur overnight. And there are some times where you can look at um, the reign of a king and you can see very clearly... A divide in their in their kingship that started off good and it and it ended bad, perhaps even it started off bad and ended bad. Um, but in Solomon, it's you you really can't divide his kingship uh, up like that between a, a righteous period and an evil period. Um, it's really a gradual divergence from the holy standard, which he had committed himself to, at least we learn in ideal, ideally anyway, at the beginning of his rule. Remember, um, first Kings, just give me one second. I'm going to, uh, my phone is blowing up, so I'm going to turn this do not disturb on real quick. Um, so remember in first Kings three, three through nine, um, so, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at high places. Uh-oh. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there. And there was a great high place. And, and so he goes on to kind of t- tell about this. So even from the very beginning, what we see with Solomon's reign is that, okay, he he seems to want to obey the Lord he, he see that the author of the text clearly wants us to know that Solomon had a divided heart. There, w- there was he, he did love Yahweh and did want to follow after what David had done, his father. But there was also uh, some compromises that he made along the way, and some things that he had done that already we could see is starting to diverge, diverge from his you know, this this holy standard that he had committed himself to. And so the author of Kings drops the these little hints along the way, but he worshipped at the high places, that he made certain compromises. And um that that sort of set the tone for the remainder of his kingship. So you can see it's it's Solomon is one of the most um I think one of the most uh you know befuddling if i could use that word befuddling characters in um in israel's story uh because you have this person who on the one side has immense wisdom whom god has blessed immensely with uh with riches and treasures and has blessed israel under his reign and builds his his temple and is sitting on his father's throne and commits himself verbally to following God, and then yet weaved throughout or woven throughout his kingship is also these just really sour patches that are are just not as, as you know, robust as we find in David. David made some terrible choices and, and sinned grievously, but what do we see with David, but that he comes back to repentance time and time again, and we don't see that with Solomon. Um, we we see uh, at least not in in the same way. We see um, him, the author, telling us hey, he loved the Lord, but then all of a sudden he he made he sacrificed at the high places. And we also saw that right out of the gate, what does he do? He marries uh, Pharaoh's daughter, and made a compromise there. That's told to us specifically in the text that he married Pharaoh's daughter. And we see that in 1 Kings 3.1, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jer- Jerusalem. But this clearly violates what we've seen of a royal son of Yahweh in the law. In Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 17, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God God will choose one from among your brothers, and you shall set as a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never... Uh, return that way again and he shall not require many wives for himself lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire him uh, for himself excessive silver or gold now we know that this is true of of solomon we know that he acquires many wives for himself and we know that he also this is going to be one of the things that turns his heart in the end are these wives and so it's very clear from the very beginning that that this is a A complicated matter. This is a complicated person who, though he loves God, is also compromised in many ways and makes these compromises along the way because apparently he loved many women. And so the last years of Solomon's life are filled with this mixture of joy and sorrow, triumph and defeat. We see these excessive building programs that he had where he oppressed a lot of people. He enslaved a lot of, uh, pay, well, all, all of the people that were outside of Israel, instead of, we saw with um, with David where David would tax the pe- the lands that he conquered, he would tax them and they would pay tribute. Solomon um, forewent a lot of that and made them slaves instead because he had a lot of buildings that he had to build. And then with the people in Israel, within the borders of Israel, he took them and he, he put them in the army. He made them serve in the army. And, so he, in lieu of like a lot of like payment and tribute, he instead put them all to work for him. And, um, and, and then we also see that he partially relieved some of this by uh, fitting out a, a navy under a Phoenician direction. And these ships he sent out across the Red Sea and um, through all kinds of places throughout the world in the Mediterranean and, and otherwise – And what would they do? They would go and capture, go go and grab exotic goods from foreign lands and bring them into the land of Israel and sell them there. And so, what you what you have in in Israel under the reign of Solomon is a a person who, rather than just exacting tribute, would put people to work building. And so, you get these massive buildings that have never been before seen in the world, really these sort of um, uh, in very impressive structures with a lot of slave labor, to be honest with you. But then you also have these goods coming into the land from all over the place. And so so Israel becomes sort of this, um, you know, merchant's paradise, as it were, where you could get clothing and different kinds of things from all over the world. And so it, it was a, it was a um, you know, a, a really a, basically a, a, a massive... I guess you would call it a shopping mall. Uh, it's essentially uh, is essentially way way to think about it. And so, I mean, Israel was booming as far as goods and services and you know products that they had they had there. But all the while, the king is making compromises in his in his own heart. And so, we see that it, this obviously resulted in you know quite a handsome profit for. Um, for Solomon. So look at um, look at 1 Kings 10, 22 to 29. For the king had a fleet of ships of Tarshish at sea. You've heard of that town, I'm sure. Um, with a fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the fleet of ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Hey, look at that. Thus, King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom, and the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. into his mind. Every one of them brought his present um, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year, and Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had Fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horsemen, whom he stationed in, in the in the chariot cities with the king of Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common as in, common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q. Uh, that also is against um, the the law and Deut- Deuteronomy we just read. And the king's traders received uh, received them from Q at a price. A chariot could be imported from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. And so through the king's traders, they were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. So just think about for just a second uh, what we think of like, um, you know, New York City or something like a big... A big city like that we we think of um lots of shows and and lots of things that sort of a spectacle a modern spectacle um that we would want to go and see and experience or maybe you might think of paris or uh, london or or many of these big cities well in the ancient world uh, jerusalem under solomon quickly became that so everybody's coming especially kings are coming from around around the world and what are they wanting to know why do you think they're seeking solomon they want what he has, obviously. How do they become what he is? So in, it's an interesting parable, I think, as we watch Solomon's reign. Here is a person who we see in the backdrop of their kingship. The author is coloring all the things they do with these subtle hints. Yeah, but he worshipped at the high places. Yeah, but he married foreign women. Yeah, but he acquired for himself many, for, many horses from foreign armies, especially from Egypt. Um, yeah, but he did this. and Yeah, but he did that. And, but, we're, but on the surface, we're looking at nothing but success. And the entire world is completely oblivious to all the moral compromises that Solomon is making. They're ignoring that altogether. They see the material wealth and the material success, and they come flocking to it and they want it. But the author is telling us yes, but under the surface, Solomon's heart is twisted. And that's a problem. And we're going to see that as a problem in the coming weeks as it leads to Israel's uh, ultimate division and downfall. Um, So here's on the one side he loves Yahweh and wanted to walk according to his statutes and yet he's worshiping at the high places which you know other than the one at Gibeon were really taboo uh the one at Gibeon we see is is you know i don't know it's it's a little bit different because it's kind of hard to tell what what exactly is going on there we know there was some important things there and the uh, tabernacle I believe is stationed there at the time and so Um, that's a little bit slightly different, but we see, we do see him worshiping at the high places. And then the author of Kings makes clear that there's a connection also between Solomon's illicit marriages and the illicit worship that he engaged in. And so he points out that Solomon loves these foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, and they encourage him to apostasy. And so these foreign women, just like the law tells us is going to happen in Deuteronomy 17, um, it actually does happen. Look at 1 Kings 11, 3 to 8. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines, and his wives turned turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as was the heart of David, his father. For Solomon went after Astareth, uh, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David, his father, had done. Then Solomon built a high place at Chemosh and the abomination of Moab. And for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem, so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. So here he's making, he's, again, not only is he making compromises, but now at the end of his life, these compromises have gone, uh, uh, you know, way out of bounds. I'm, a, a, I, I, I'm not a golfer but I like to play golf. And so I have to temper everyone's expectations because when I get out there, it's not pretty. But one thing that's, that's interesting is, uh, is, you know, when you hit, when you hit a ball that's slicing, that means it's curving away from you. Um, it, it starts to take off. And at first you get this thought in your mind, like this isn't going to be that bad. I can see that it's starting to curve, but it's not going to be that bad. But if it stays in the air long enough, by the time it actually hits the ground, it's way far afield. And, and this is true of Solomon. It's, it, it's, it's that at the beginning we see these hints that he's, yeah, he, he's making some compromises here, but hopefully it won't be too bad. But then what do we see? But by the end of his life, that's when things are far afield now. He's out in, in pagan lands building high places. For his wives, and there he is, uh, we presume, worshiping there at the temples as well. And their turn, his all these foreign women are turning his heart away. But what was it? It didn't start by him just building high places. It started with subtle compromises along the way, an initial taking of a foreign wife to make a, a political alliance with the king of Egypt. It started with, you know, with not only adopting, but then uh, uh, taking for himself these horses from foreign lands and selling them out and and, and being the attraction of all the, the known world and, and establishing for himself the, all these riches and things like this, basically doing everything that Deuteronomy 17 told him, don't do those things. He did every single one of them. And by the time we get to the end, what do we see? But complete and total apostasy. Um, but we also learn as we get to 1 Kings 14, that, wait a minute, uh, the marriage to Pharaoh's daughter couldn't have been the first pagan wife that he actually had. In fact, the first pagan wife that he had had to have been Naamah, the Ammonite. He took an Ammonite wife before he married Pharaoh's daughter and even before he became king. And how do we know that? But because in 1 Kings fourteen twenty one. When it talks about Rehoboam, Solomon's son, Rehoboam the son of Solomon reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned for 17 years in Jerusalem and on and on. And he his mother's name was Naamah the Ammonite. So she was an Ammonite. He began reigning when he was 41. Solomon reigned for 40 years. So one year before he took the throne, his son, uh, Rehoboam, was born to an Ammonite woman. So he had begun taking pagan wives even before he took the throne in Israel. Um, so this brings a lot of, you know, uh, uh, complications into the text. But then what do we make? So... I think the biggest question and the biggest kind of enigma that is Solomon is I thought he had all this wisdom. I thought he knew and understood, and I and I mean, so then how does he end up in this state at the very end of moral and spiritual apostasy? It we see it comes in spite of the fact. That Solomon was blessed with the wisdom of God and was known throughout the world as the wisest of all mortals. Uh, look at uh first Kings 4:31 there on your packets For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite. And we all know how wise he was. And he-man, we know how wise He-Man is, Kalkol, Darda, the sons of Mahal. And his fame was in all the surrounding nations. Then look at First uh, Kings ten one. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She wanted to find out just how wise he was. We we know he was wise. How is it that he gets to this place? It, it's, it's sort of a parable to us and really kind of fearful. How can we pray for wisdom if we can't trust it in the end? It's going to help us to, to steer clear of um uh, of sin. Um, in, In ancient Israel and really in the ancient Near East, wisdom was not synonymous necessarily with knowledge or with education, but it had to do with the ability to live life in a skillful way, an ability that the Bible insists is possessed only by the individual who knows and fears God. That said, Solomon's wisdom included. We saw the composition of thousands of songs. Uh, he knew all about trees and animals and birds and fish. So the wisdom that God had given to him was clearly not just restricted um, to, you know, knowing what uh, path you sh- I should say is is was right. If you think back to Psalm one one or Psalm one. That sort of um, two two ways, you know, that you could go the path of the righteous or the path of the evil. It's not wisdom is is not only restricted to that, though. That's primarily what is meant by wisdom. It, it also seems to see say with Solomon, he knew a lot of things about a lot of different things. God had given him natural knowledge too. Well. Old Testament wisdom literature is also insightful in terms of human character and personality. Even without the benefits of modern psychology or in psychiatry, Solomon has this basic awareness of what drives a human's emotions. And therefore, he can offer counsel based on moral and the moral and ethical nature of God. That's what we see with Solomon. We see that all the way back with the prostitutes, remember, that that have the the dispute over the child. They come before Solomon and and each one's claiming that the child is is hers. And and so Solomon uh, decides, well, there's one way we can tell whose is whose, and that is to divide the baby in half. And the mother speaks up and goes, No, 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 don't, just save the baby. She can have him. And Solomon, you know, kind of uses this trick to expose who the real mother is and, and that sort of thing. Um, it, it, it's sort of uh, underlining in the text that the kind of knowledge, the kind of wisdom that he was given was insight into what drives a human being. Um, however, all that being said, Solomon's defection. In the face of his preeminent wisdom is a clear case that it is possible to be wise in the biblical sense. That is to know the ways of God, to understand what drives human nature and things like that, and yet fail to live out the implications of this wisdom. Solomon's sin in multiplying wise we see in turning after other gods. It doesn't invalidate the fact that he had wisdom and that God had given him wisdom, but it undercuts any claim on his part that he ordered his own life and that of his kingdom according to its principles. It seems that even if you have wisdom, you still have to actually put it into practice. Solomon's heart is divided. Solomon, um, basically, all the choices that he made is a testimony to the fact that even though he is in sin and in apostasy, um, he knew better. So Solomon's life is a parable for us, it doesn't start with an affair. It doesn't start with um, murder. No, it starts with a heart that is inclined towards someone else. It starts with a heart that is angry with your brother, which is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount identifies adultery back in the heart, identifies murder back in the heart. It's not killing your brother. It starts here. It's these first little compromises. It's Solomon's first love of foreign women which betrays him he and and it's in spite of the fact that he knows better he knows the law of god he understands it uh god has given him that and yet he still makes sinful compromises so the affair is is always traced back to an initial desire anytime uh i I think it's it's kind of the the typical course you could expect from me if you sit down in my office for, you know, we go through counseling or or, um, on complex issues and things like that. Um, There's inevitably it's, it's, it it, nearly always, it, it, there's some, there's some typical sort of markers that you see. Um, There's always these, you know, cacophony of bad choices that are being made. And almost every time when a person sits down in a, in, uh, the chair, they're always, they always start with the bad, the bad choices. Well, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. I did this. M- my job really in, in counseling is to pull back away from the bad choices and help them see that all of those choices actually start way further back with a heart whose inclination is toward bad desires. Wait, wait. wait. It didn't start with the affair First, it started with a pornography addiction. Well, actually, before that, it started with a desire for other women. Well, before that, actually, it started with a missing desire for Christ altogether. And so when the purpose of doing that and helping them see that the matter started first in the heart is if, 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 if someone is, is in a bad way merely because of their poor choices, then The solution is, well, let's put up a bunch of walls. Let's put up a bunch of blockades that keep you from making those bad choices. The problem is if the problem is in the heart, all you've done by by building a a walled city around them is you've locked them in with the enemy, right? You You have, you have, and you've not told them how to actually defeat the enemy. The enemy lies within it's an inside job always. And so the job is then to help them see that if the problem is a bad heart and it's bad affections, your affections are twisted and you really, you really want foreign women in Solomon's case, or you want these other things, then ultimately it's going to lead to pornography. It's going to lead to adultery. It's going to lead to a a host of other bad decisions. But if the problem is the heart, then what we need to do is, is not only restrict your access from, from. All these things we need to actually build your affections to something better, which is, I mean, the entire process of the gospel is telling you that God Christ actually satisfies your needs better than those things. Those things are better. God is better for you than all of those things. And ultimately, you will be satisfied and you will be happy following after the uh, in obedience to God more than all those other things. And when you build your affections for the things of God, all of a sudden you lose your appetite for a lot of these other things that are that are surrounding you. It's it's an appetite change that has to happen. And so for Solomon, it's a parable. And exactly that his whole life is. Um, questions? We've got just a few minutes here, so questions, comments, things like that. So, Michael, can you talk a little bit about how one builds affections in the heart toward God? Yeah, good uh, question. Right? Because, because I mean, you know, we 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 kind of talk about this a lot. That you know. Only God can change a heart, Yeah, right? But certainly there seems to be something we ought to be able to do to, I guess, open ourselves up to God's changing of our heart. Absolutely. I don't know, Maybe That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, So, you know, two things. First of all, let's get it straight. Uh, If a person is not a Christian, then we start with this is what the gospel is. You have to believe this before anything will ever change. Okay. So that's it. What we have to realize too is that we are fighting uh, a nature, a sinful nature that without faith, without the indwelling Holy Spirit, it is impossible to please God. So a person who is not a Christian will never be able to please God, no matter the choices they make. Okay. But a person who is a Christian, what that the change is, is that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside. So now affections for God can actually be built. So assuming the person is a Christian, then how do we grow in our affections toward toward God? Well, okay, it's not going to be apart from reading the scriptures. It's not going to be apart from prayer. Those things are given to us as a grace and mercy from God, and they're meant to build our affections for him. Um, also, regular means of grace. Uh, church. The church body is meant to do that. Regular preaching, regular singing, regular uh, praying, regular scripture reading in the services, regular confession of sin, regular being together with the body, regularly building one another up, regularly admonishing one another in sin, repentance, all of those things are going to play into the building of affection. But here's what the problem is when you have a person in this situation. They are in such a state that their own heart, when they go home, they, they, they get away from the counseling and they're like, okay, I'm going to make some changes and th- this has got to be done. But then tomorrow they wake up and they don't want to read their Bible. They don't want to pray. They have no appetite for it, right? So what that means, though, is that, uh, is that they're going to have to begin doing it in subtle ways. They're going to need accountability. They're going to need someone next to them saying, okay, well, you're going to do this with me if you have to. Come over to my house, 630 in the morning. We're going to sit down. We're going to read the Bible together. We have to. um, We're going to continue to pray together. But then we also have to pay attention to all of the other things in your life that begin to pull away from time in the word, time in prayer, things like that, that distract your affection. So I, I always go through what are all the things that you do in a typical day? I want every Netflix show you've got in your queue. I want every podcast you listen to. I want every TV show you watch. I want every movie you watch. What are the things that right now you regularly do? Okay? I want I want them all. All right? So we go through and we list every single thing. The problem is that Netflix show might not be bad. It might not have one ounce of nudity in it. It might not have one curse word in it. But does it build your affections towards God? It doesn't. It will not. Invariably, the answer is no. Well, for a person who is really struggling with their affections being toward the Lord, that's like poison to them. So you have to take it all away. And instead, you have to then put into your life ways of using media that build your affections. So instead of watching Netflix, what can you watch that actually edifies you? Instead of listening to that podcast, what can you listen to that will actually edify you? So are there pastors or the preachers that you enjoy listening to their sermons? Do that. are th- is there music that you, that builds you up and, and points you to Christ? Listen to that. Um, for me, you know, years ago, back when I was uh, newly married, um, went through a really kind of big episode in my life where driving to work, I was listening to sports talk radio. It had to go, turn it off. Instead, listen to, uh, you know, worship music that helps stir my affections for Christ, listen to a sermon that helps stir my affections towards Christ, or just pray in the car. And so I had to do all of that. I had to implement those things because that was the only way of stirring my affections. The good news is if you do those things, the spirit that is inside you begins to grow. And with all the blockades, with all the walls you've put up. So if if a guy's addiction is to pornography, then those walls are necessary. He's got to put up you know, blockades, keeping him from accessing pornography. Sure. But so you're starving the dog of the flesh, but then on your way to, on your way to work, you're listening to, you know, things that edify you. So you're not only starving the flesh, you're also feeding the spirit. And so the dog that's going to win in a fight is the one that you feed. And if you continue to feed the flesh, it's going whip, to whip the spirit every time. But if you feed the spirit and you starve the flesh, the spirit's going to win nearly every time. So it's 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 a constant battle. Your whole life, every choice you make is all giving one power over the other. Every single choice. I hope that helps answer your question. Yeah, yeah it does. Thanks. And counseling obviously would take more like an hour to, to go through all those things. But <laughs> but that's the general idea. Uh, I think if, if honestly you know, for all of us, if we begin to kind of look at our entire lives as every, every choice we make is feeding one thing over the other, um, then, you know, it, it changes a lot of the choices that we make. Um, but you know what, Yeah, you know, I sit down with my kids and we watch a movie that is definitely not spiritually edifying, but if at the end of that, uh, we talk about the, the, gospel connections that are there in every single movie all of a sudden that movie changes a little bit and now we're beginning to repurpose what we what we have been watching or what we've been you know thinking about as ways in which the even this will edify uh we had there's a there's a process that we've gone through uh, w- uh with the staff that we will probably be i'm hoping we'll be releasing maybe sometime next year which is um basically a a just sort of family devotionals that take uh, movies that we all watch with our kids and, um, and showing how all of these actually will connect back to the gospel and will underline truths of the gospel, even though secular Hollywood doesn't realize it. And you can help your kid think about the gospel connections, even in some of these, in some of these movies. Um, And so, you know, it's helpful to think about all of those things in your life as being really uh, what What does this show us about human nature? What does this show us about you know redemption that we all long for you know Other questions I guess I'll be seeing you at six thirty in the morning. <laughs> 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 so ready. Um, you know, so one one of the things that I really think is helpful, and I, I try to tell this to everybody that that has a problem, has a real hard problem studying scripture, just reading the Bible, um, th- th- a couple of things. One, you know, I think it's pretty easy when you wake up in the morning to pick up your phone and look at Facebook or social media or whatever. Um, and that's like the first thing you read, roll over, you grab your phone and you do that. Well, um, you know, if instead when you grab your phone, okay, if you want to go to social media, I'm not going to fight you on that right now. But uh, the first thing you do, open your you know, music player and just play worship music. If you got to put a headphone in, put a headphone in. Just play worship music and just listen to it. If you're browsing social media, okay, whatever. But you're, you're listening to worship music. And, and, and s- sing with it if you can. Allow it to begin your repetition of the songs to, to begin sort of stirring your heart's affections toward the Lord. The other thing that I would recommend is um, perhaps even like a little, um, you know, I use a commentary, but, but I would say like a little devotional. Um, D.A. Carson wrote a good one called The Love of God, I think it is, and it's, it's several volumes, and it goes through a read through the Bible reading plan. And he makes a just a brief little comment on each one. And all of them are devotional, devotionally oriented. Spurgeon's morning and evening. There's several, there's several great devotionals out there that you can use. Spurgeons may be a little old for you. And so you might want something a little bit newer or maybe a little bit more simple or whatever. Use one of those. Read through it and have somebody actually just teaching you. If you can't, if you can't even begin there, take a podcast of like a you know a good preacher that you really enjoy and just listen to it. Uh, Hit play on it. Even if it's while you're browsing Facebook and let it begin to stir your affections. You're going to wake up almost every morning ice cold, ice cold. And so you have to realize that when you open your eyes, you're immediately thrown into a middle of a war. And if you don't begin fighting that war, it is going to kill you. And so it's a, it's a process for all of us, every single one of us. Um, You know, for me, I have, I have sleep issues. So I sleep, you know, maybe between four and five hours a night and that's usually interrupted. And so for me, waking up early in the morning, I prefer to get up early in the morning, but sometimes I can't. And so I, you know, I fall asleep back asleep at like five 30 or six. And so I'm going to sleep until, you know, seven 30 or whatever and get up and go to work. Well, you know that kind of blows that. So I have to carve out that first bit when I get into the office to to have those you know devotional times if I'm going to have them at all. Often, you know, a lot of mornings, and that's with a you know gallon of coffee. So, um, you know, you, you kind of have to do what you have to do. But you're in the middle of a war, and you've got to realize that from the moment you open your eyes. I could talk about this all night, but uh, it's 7:28. I know people got to be places, so I want to honor your time. Uh, let me pray for us as we go. Heavenly Father, thank you for an opportunity to just uh, think about what you've laid out in your in your holy word, and as we see uh, interwoven through Solomon's life, even uh, just a, a just such a mixed bag. And we definitely do not want to be the people who have all the tools who are always learning and never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. We don't want to be that. And we know that you have given to us your spirit. And so we want to uh, grow in our affections for you. And I pray that you would do that. Enlarge our heart, increase our affections for you. That we may uh, be obedient to your word and love um, love study of it, love growing in knowledge and understanding. Um, but all of that knowledge and understanding serving to, to enlarge our hearts and affections for you. Um, I pray that you would do that in us and give us an appetite for your word. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen.